This is No More Normal, Namono for short. I'm Khalil Ekolona. Fall is quickly approaching and schools are back in session. However, this year things are not moving according to schedule due to the COVID-19 pandemic. On top of staying healthy, students, parents, teachers, and administrators are faced with even more of the roadblocks that were around before COVID announced its arrival. Things like technology inequities, poor or limited access to the internet, the transparency of information, and racism, to name a few of the items on the syllabus. How are educators adapting? How are school districts informing the public about proper COVID numbers and their plans for in-person learning? And how are students dealing with it all? I was happy that I wouldn't have to sit in the class for like, ever. Then a distance learning came and I, I didn't like it. It takes forever and it kind of melts your eyes. Over the next hour, we seek to discover what plan, if any plan, is a good one for education. Jane Elliott, internationally known teacher, lecturer, and diversity trainer, exposes racism for what it is. 52 years ago, she created the Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes exercise to show the impact of prejudice and bigotry in our society. I had the honor of talking with her on Friday. The first thing I asked is what she would do if she were still in the classroom today. I would insist that every person working as a teacher stop calling themselves teachers and call themselves educators because educators are supposed to be leading children and other people out of ignorance. Any instructor who goes into a classroom and says to her students, when I see people, I don't see people as black or brown or red or yellow, I just see people as people, be re-educated immediately because that is one of the most racist statements you can make. Mm-hmm. I would re-educate the educators, but first I would re-educate the educators of the educators yeah. because those people who are coming out of teacher training institutions are learning the same things that their teachers learned when they went to college. And they learned the lie. They learned the lie of several different races on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. We will not solve the problem of racism until we start seeing all of us as 30th to 50th cousins and members of the family of man. Yes, I agree. Now, you did the Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes project for decades, so people would understand for just a little while what it was like to be treated badly and to be blamed based on a physical attribute. Some have reacted very badly to it, but do you think that it helped some people? The vast majority of those who have gone through that exercise have said during and afterward that it changed the way they see their world and the way they see themselves in it. People get excited about the one or two that they've seen on television who went crazy. Mm -hmm. But they don't look at the other 98% who went through it, who learned from it, and who applied that learning in their lives. Mm -hmm. I get letters from people who have learned it, have learned from it, have learned positively from it, and have changed the way they behave and the way they see other people as a result of having walked in somebody else's shoes for a day. And it isn't even for a day, it's for like an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah. But, you see, we are concerned about the few who are angry about having to go through that for two or three hours. But we have no sorrow for those who we put through that pre-birth and after they're dead mm-hmm. for a whole lifetime. Mm-hmm. We, have no, we have no sympathy for them, nor do we have any concern for them. Sometimes at the end of the exercise, the blue-eyed person will turn to the brown-eyed person who is black beside her and say, this was too severe. This is too harsh. We shouldn't have done this. And the black person will say, what about us? We go through this every day. And I have heard white women say to them, that's different. You're used to it. You can take it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Now think of that. Think of the implications of that statement. 
Yeah. It's all right for you because we've done it to you long enough that you can take it now. You're used to it. Mm-hmm. But for me, I've just had it for an hour and a half, and I just can't take this. Mm-hmm. That says something about the worth we see in black people if we think they can put up with this for a lifetime and not get angry. Yeah. But we can't put up with it for an hour and a half without going slightly crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I I see a bit of contradiction in that statement, too, because if someone were to come to her and say something misogynist, as far as you're a woman, you've been dealing with this your entire life, you can take that. That's just an incredible contradiction and inability to see the humanity in others. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have white women who ran the women's movement, and they were allowed to do it because it slowed down the civil rights movement. Make no mistake about that. Mm Mm-hmm. And that women's movement was for mostly pale-faced women. They might as well have been wearing signs that said, black women need not apply, because we have not applied the things that we should have applied to all women. We have applied them to white women. Mm-hmm. You developed this in 1968, and here we are in 2020, still in basically the same situation. Yes, we had President Obama and we've had several uh, celebrities and sports figures raise themselves to prominent positions in, you know, our society. But we're still essentially in the same place. Uh, How frustrated must you be? No, we aren't in the same place. We are in worse shape than we were during the civil rights movement because we have a leader, supposedly a leader, Mm -hmm. who says it's all right to hate those who are different from yourself. It's all right to abuse those people. It's all right. And he has said openly, we're going to put a wall along the southern border of the United States because we don't want those brown-skinned people to come in here because they reproduce too rapidly. Mm. The fear of white people in this country right now is the knowledge that the demographics of this country say within 30 years, white people will be a numerical minority in the United States of America. And that's what we're dealing with is that fear. Hmm. A fear of losing power, a fear of losing privilege. What suggestions do you make for someone to unlearn racism? If we all considered ourselves members of the same race, we wouldn't need racism. We'd have colorism, probably. We'll have culturalism, probably. We'll have nationalism, probably. We'll have all kinds of isms, but it's insane to base your judgment of another person on the amount of a chemical in their skin. So-called white people won't realize how uncomfortable that is until we start changing the language of racism. None of us are white. People do not come in that color. We need to get over the idea that we are white. White was the word that was used during the Spanish Inquisition because white is the color of purity and goodness. Black is the color of badness and evil. So those who are dark brown were called white, and those who were dark brown were called black. White and black are misnomers. If you want to know what color you are, Go to the thesaurus and look for synonyms of brown. Hmm. Every human being on the face of the earth is a shade of brown. Now, I want to talk about being in the classroom and biases. How do teachers and educators counter their own biases and racism so that it doesn't enter the classroom? They'd better leave them at the door. Mm -hmm. They know what their biases are and they carry them into the classroom. And the administrators had better take a close look at that and say, I can see from the way you looked at that child when he came into my, into my office that you have some unresolved issues. Mm-hmm. We have too many children who will be impacted negatively by your behavior 
in this school for you to stay here and do a good job as an educator. Yeah. You cannot work here. When I did the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise every year, I found out that the dyslexic boys were on the top in that exercise. They could read words. I knew they couldn't read, and they could spell words. I knew they couldn't spell because they were living up to my expectations of them. Mm -hmm. Blue-eyed people lived down to my expectations of them. Children of color in this country are expected to live down to the teacher's expectations of them. Most teachers don't even realize that they're doing it. And the ones who do realize that they're doing it think that nobody else is catching on to it. The kids catch on. Yeah. We're seeing a lot more armed racist militias around the United States once again. We're seeing politicians openly align with racist people and organizations. We're headed toward an election that looks like it's going to inflame and embolden racism and racists. What are you thinking as we face this very important d decision we're making as a country in November? If we make the wrong decision in November... We are in danger of losing our democracy. Let's look back at over a lifetime of racism work in the U.S. You've been fielding a lot of interview requests again right now, doing one with us. I'm so grateful for it. Why do you think people are turning back to your work and seeking your wisdom? Because they saw with their own eyes on television, white folks did, what people of color have been seeing with their own eyes for the last 250 years in this country and have been talking about it and have been being told that it's their imagination that it isn't really that bad, they're playing the race card. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of young people were allowed to watch a white policeman with his knee on a black man's neck for nine over nine minutes while people said to him, let him up, let him up, let him up. And three others held him down well, that man put his knee on that other man's neck and killed him deliberately. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, white people began to realize, oh, my God, is this what it's about if you're a person of color in this country? And if you think it isn't, go to a Navajo reservation. This has been a real wake-up call for young people, and they're going to put a stop to it. Do you have hope with the situation we're at right now? Do you have hope for the future? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to have a whole lot more hope on November 3rd if we all go and vote yeah. for a person who will appeal to our better sides instead of our worst side. I want to thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much. It's such a great honor to speak with you. Jane Elliott, master educator, creator of the Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes Project. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Call me again sometime. Israel Reyes is a senior at Atrisco Heritage Academy High School. He joins me to talk about Voices in Action, an organization made up of the youth that seeks to make changes in education that benefit everyone. Voices in Action, they're trying to help students to be heard by their school administrators. Why do you think an organization like this is needed? Not many students get the information that they need, so they are not aware of what's going on. So mm. if we have organizations like VIA, it gives students the material or knowledge that students will need to help have a say in what's going on in their school. Mm -hmm. Do you think the schools in the districts are being transparent and open enough with information? No, I don't think they are. In a forum that I was in, many teachers went and they said that sometimes the school board or the district doesn't even want teachers to go to the board meeting. Mm. What does that say to you? To me, it says that the schools 
or the board just wants things to happen their way and they don't want anybody to have a say in it. Some students in Albuquerque are organizing to try to get police out of schools. Is that something you support? Yeah, I do support defunding APS police because I don't think there should be police on campus. It further criminalizes students and strikes fears into students and families. But what about the idea that police are needed to keep schools safe? I mean, we're rife with school shootings almost every year. I haven't heard about any this year, obviously, because school has been out and COVID-19 hit. But every year we're hit with a rash of school shootings and the police are there supposedly to protect students from such incidents taking place. Yes, I do agree that police should be on campus for emergencies such as school shootings or lockdown situations. Mm -hmm. But I don't think police should be like terribly walking campus because students get suspended from schools for really not good reasons to be suspended. I got you. And finally, if you could see anything change in this moment about education, what would it be? The age of voting into APS, like... 16 or 17 because you're in school when you're 16 or 17 but like when you hit 18 you're already like graduating school so you're not really going to care about what's going on in the schools anymore mm-hmm. so i feel like we should lower the voting ages to 16 and 17 for like APS. i understand that yeah so actually the people it affects the most will have at least their vote to have their say in it yes i like that a lot i want to thank you very much for being on the show. He is Israel Reyes. He is with Voices in Action, and he's also a senior at Atrisco Heritage Academy. Thank you again, Israel. Thank you so much. Let's keep it real. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, there was already a scarcity of educational resources on tribal lands. The lack of access to the internet and technology are only a couple, yet people are working to make the situation better. Jasmine Yepa, coordinator for the Tribal Education Alliance and senior analyst for the Native American Budget and Policy Institute, breaks it down. But tell me, what are some of the strategies people are employing on tribal lands as they try to work through physical distancing and education? I live in a Pueblo, so that's a very unique community setting. Since we all live in such close proximity, you know, many of our Pueblos have been on lockdown since March. That makes it harder to open schools and go hybrid. Even a hybrid model is something that's very risky in our communities. In Hamas, our leadership has been very adamant that students must go virtual for the first entire semester for those reasons. Let's talk about like access to services. We hear all the time about poor internet infrastructure on tribal lands and bad phone service. How are people working through those access issues? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'm actually even experiencing that right now today. We are having issues with our Internet, which actually has been extremely stable up until just this month or so. And I think it's because they're really trying hard to add in more fiber and get more people connected. We have like one main provider that has really reliable Internet here in the Pueblo. And so uh, I know that our tribe is 
working to get every single household connected. That way we're not having such terrible issues for students that don't have reliable internet so that everybody is connected at least by December. My daughter's using a hotspot and many of her classmates have to use mobile hotspots and they're just so unreliable. We get kicked out of our Zoom meetings every 20 minutes, I'd say, and she's online for about almost four hours. Oh, wow. That's incredibly frustrating and difficult. How does she feel when she goes through that? Oh my gosh, my my daughter, she's the oldest and she already has very minimum patience. When she gets kicked out, it's very frustrating for her. I actually haven't really seen her this frustrated, I'd say, ever in her six years of being her mom. She's usually a really happy-go-lucky kid, but to see her just frown when she gets kicked out every 20 minutes or so, it, it disrupts the learning that's happening. Yeah. You know, so many Native communities have been hit hardest by the pandemic. Is there emotional component as well? Like maybe it's hard to help young people focus on school when there's so much else to worry about. Yeah, I would definitely say that. In Hamas, though, we've been very fortunate because we've been on a super strict lockdown since March. And so many people only had one day a week that we were allowed to leave for essential purposes like grocery shopping and laundry and other errands. And so we've been very fortunate to have our numbers not exceed 20. I think we've only had 12. But many of our kids have family members in other Pueblos and other tribes, such as the Navajo Nation. And I know for a fact that, you know, we're hearing from our relatives, we're hearing from our friends, and it's just extremely sad and it's scary. I think we all understand that COVID is a very real thing and our kids are definitely feeling it. I want to thank you so much for joining the show. She's Jasmine Yepa. She's with the Tribal Education Alliance. She's also a coordinator and senior analyst for the Native American Budget and Policy Institute. Thank you so much for being with me, Jasmine. Thank you. Being a parent to children in school is more than making sure they arrive at school. My mother, Olufemiye Colonna, taught me that as she was a staunch advocate for her kids. Earlier in the week, I talked with her about why she was so active. Now, one thing that I did and your father did is that we opened it up to you all that you knew that if there was anything that was going wrong or that you didn't like or you were having a hard time with, that you could come and talk to us. You have to dig in. You have to be there and know everything that's going on. There were two of you at two separate times where your grades were going down. And I couldn't figure out what was happening. So I talked to your father. And what we did on two separate occasions at two different years, we formed a parent-teachers conference with all of you all's teachers at one time to find out what this problem was. When they saw your father and I sitting there with all of them saying, now let's get this together. What's going on? Why is my child's grades falling down? Actually, the teachers appreciated that. They really did, and they were very involved, and they helped us solve the problem. When a parent comes to a teacher, whether they're upset or not, you know many teachers appreciate that. You do have those, and we were fortunate enough. Most of the teachers appreciated our coming in, and we could see that they were going to work with us with a child. Not every teacher is going to get mad and upset. They're going to say, oh, well, let me work with this child. 
it's always better. And if it's not, and you don't feel it isn't, then you go higher. I mean, any little thing, if your child complains about a teacher, you have to sit down and talk to them and make sure that things go right. And if it doesn't go right there, then you take it further. Even if you have to take it to the superintendent of schools. If you feel you're right, if your child is not being taken care of in the proper manner, you don't stop. Any parents listening to me or any of you younger people who are going to have children, you just have to stay behind them. I remember when I was in the second grade, our names were changed legally. And our last name was changed from Floyd to A. Colonna. My second grade teacher refused to address me as A. Colonna. You know, it was a really big issue with that classroom. Yeah. I mean, your father and I weren't going to have it. What is it that you can't use the name A. Colonna instead of the original name Floyd? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. So it took a lot, which is very unfortunate. But finally, your teacher had to concede and call you that. I remember it was like about a month, well, I don't know, time relative. It took a while. It took a while, you know? And I remember you and Baba sitting me down and saying that, hey, your teacher is racist because she's refusing to call you by your new name. Yeah, it's an unfortunate thing with black kids. You have to teach them about racism so early. Mm which is so sad. Your father, he came to me and he said, I don't like what they're reading. They're not reading black authors. He went to the school and he gave them a list of black authors that they should start letting the kids read, and they did it. You just can't trust anybody else. You've got to stay behind it. You know what I mean? Which one of your kids was the easiest to deal with when it came to school? Honestly, none of you. Yeah? Okay. You each had your own little thing that I would have to go up to the school for, or it was always something. You mean not me? I am so sorry, my darling, but no. (laughs) (laughs) In, In different ways, I was at that school all the time. Each one of you sent me up there quite a bit. I'm telling you. You have to understand that your child can be wrong, too, you know. And we were both very open-minded and understanding that I I didn't have a a child with a halo over its head and that they could do wrong. So we would come home and and I would talk to you about it. There were times when we went and you all gave us the wrong information. (laughs) And it was all right. We got what was actually the truth in some cases. You know, if the teacher's telling you this, then you realize that your kid politely omitted that part. Your father and I were divorced. Most of your school time, still, we were together with having you all do well all the way around and in school. So these parents who are separated or divorced both need to be involved. That's hard for a lot of people because of the personal pain and the emotions of the separation or that divorce. How were you and Baba, my father, able to put your feelings and emotions aside? Well, we were just both on the same note on that one. You know, we loved you so much that we were just able to look the other way at things that we didn't like and come together for you all. It it, it does fall on one parent. A lot of it fell on me. But your father was always willing, if I called him, to listen, to come and talk to you, to go up to the school with you. You know, we just did it. No stone went unturned. 
to the point that I know that they had a party when the last of you graduated from high school. <laughs> We don't have to look at her anymore. <laughs> you know? That's right. We're done. We're yeah. done. Next up, we're going to talk to an organization that helps parents do what my mom did, advocate for their kids at school. I have on the line Antonio Granillo, Community Advocacy Manager at Partnership for Community Action. Even under normal circumstances, it can be hard for parents to advocate for their kids when it comes to school. So tell me, what are some of the roadblocks? A lot of the time, parents find difficulty in navigating education systems, especially right now. Certain schools may place barriers. It often is language barrier, especially for the immigrant communities that we work with. Mm -hmm. But also families may find difficulty in communicating with their teachers. And if they need special education services, sometimes those barriers are in place. So how are you seeing all of that play out during the pandemic? Well, the challenging thing that we're seeing from families right now is technology mm. and high bandwidth broadband internet. Fortunately, here in Albuquerque, APS has been quite responsive in providing laptops to families. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time, families have difficulty in connecting with their teachers and classrooms because you may have multiple video streams going at once yeah. if there's more than one kid in the house. Even with the benefit right now, families getting free service through Comcast, through APS, we're seeing that now even that speed is not enough for families to be on, on multiple streams. Mm. And especially when we compare public charter schools to traditional public schools, there is usually more communication between parents and teachers and administrators at the public charter schools versus the traditional public schools. And that has made a lot of parents feel disconnected and stressed about, is my child going to be counted absent? Is my child going to fail this year because we're not able to connect? There's a lack of reassurance for some parents from their child's schools. So tell me, why does it matter that parents feel like they can get involved in their kids' education? Part of the program that most parents come to the Partnership for Community Action is Abriendo Puertas. Mm -hmm. And the very first lesson is called I am my child's first teacher. Mm. And a child education doesn't begin the first day of kindergarten. It's important for parents to know what teachers and schools are expected of them when it comes to creating a safe and productive learning environment at home mm -hmm. and also feeling like they can be advocates for their children when it comes to other services. Especially right now, it's important for parents to seek out those additional resources, be it from other online programs or through the city of Albuquerque. Now tell me, are you seeing any good strategies or good stories so far as people work through these challenges? We started hosting a conversation with families every week through Facebook. One parent brought up a challenge that she saw one of her friends experienced as a mother, and she was expected to communicate with the teacher who only spoke English, and then the mother only spoke Spanish, and then the child also only spoke Spanish. And we know that even in a pandemic, all parents need to have access to interpretation yeah. and not have that language barrier. 
So one of our community leaders actually took it upon herself to contact the school, inquire, you know, what is the issue here? Does the child need to be moved to another classroom with a bilingual teacher? What can we do to fix this? Even without involvement at all with the organization, a parent took it upon herself. And that's what we are striving to, is to see community leaders develop within their own communities and eventually advocate for themselves and for others without the organization, without the need for institutional help. So seeing very successful stories like that is important. And and we're going to see more of it because now more than ever, I think people are very responsive and even more giving than they otherwise would have been Mm -hmm. of their time and of their resources. Perfect. He is Antonio Granillo. He is the Community Advocacy Manager at PCA Partnership for Community Action. Antonio, thank you again for being with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. In the first part of the show, we heard from Jane Elliott, Voices in Action, and my mom. If you missed any of it, you can find us online or find this podcast later, which always has extended versions of these conversations or a few things that we couldn't fit into the on-air broadcast of the show. We're talking education in the time of COVID-19. Will we pass? We'll have more for you in store this hour. John Brickley from ESPN joins the show. You don't want to miss a panel of local educators talk about their evolving approach to education, and we examine the changes that COVID is making happen. No More Normal is brought to you by your New Mexico government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. College football is a big moneymaker for colleges and universities, but is it safe to play? Here to talk about it is John Brickley from ESPN. Thank you for doing this, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. Whatever I can do to help. All right. So we're here to talk college football. Out of the five power conferences, there are three who are still trying to have a football season in COVID-19, the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12. However, there's a few schools, and the ACC in particular, North Carolina State yesterday became the third school to stop in-person classes due to virus spread but they're still pushing for a football season. What does that look like to you? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's very crazy times. And I think the ACC and the Big 12 will have seasons. Obviously, we've heard about the Pac-12 and the Big 10 taking the approach that we're not going to see them till the spring. So what does that mean? If they do go forward and have a college football playoff, does that mean then there's an asterisk? Does Mm. that mean that if Clemson wins the national championship, they didn't really win it because they didn't play a full competitive schedule now even before this even began the big 10 had come out and said well we're going to only play in conference opponents so i do think we're going to have a season i think we're going to have an asterisk next to that national champion regardless now a few weeks ago a lot of players from the pac-12 essentially came out and made a statement saying that if you want us to play we're going to have to have certain guarantees And in that, they brought up the idea of being compensated for games, which currently is against NCAA policy. There's a lot of people who are arguing that the push for college football season to go is because of the money that is made. It's estimated that the Big Ten, who canceled their football season for the fall, is going to lose an estimated $1 billion for the conference and upwards of $100 million for each team in the conference. Does it look like these conferences and the NCAA wants football to be played because of the money made regardless of player safety? 
if you can make money off of athletes, especially on the college level, they're going to do anything they possibly can to make sure that the games are being played. But I think the majority of the credit needs to go to the college athlete because they're not being told what to do. They're the ones saying, we want to play. It's not mm-hmm. anyone from a committee, anyone from a specific president's office making these demands. And I tend to agree with Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and and all these individuals that want to play because, yes, there is less of a risk of these individuals picking up COVID in a bubble-like setting in college football than they would be if they were all on their own. In this day and age right now, I do think player safety is always going to win over because it doesn't make sense to have a college football season if you don't have students in classrooms in college. Yeah. Now, you also cover women's college basketball and other college sports. How do you see COVID-19 and the pandemic affecting the college basketball season, which usually starts up in October? I want to see what college basketball does if they kind of take the same route that the NBA has done Hmm. with the bubble. And let's say they only play conference games. Could you envision a scenario where they all go to Greensboro and do a bubble in that sense? And they do kind of what like an NCAA tournament type of feel to it, have a noon, two, four, six, eight, whatever it may be. Do you go down that route? Mm -hmm. I could see that happening to kind of save the college basketball season. I do agree with Coach Mike Krzyzewski, who was talking about this the other day on ESPN Radio. You can't lose out on a second straight NCAA tournament. There's too much money to lose. And I think at the end of the day, they're going to figure something out. I do think we're going to have a college basketball season, but I do think it's just like what we're seeing with the NBA. I could see it being in a bubble fashion. Man, he is John Brickley, commentator, play-by-play announcer for ESPN. Thank you so much for being with me, my friend. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. You can count on me anytime. Yes, sir. Excellent, man. Thanks again. Next up is KUNM's Ty Bannerman. He interviews his daughter to get her take on heading back to school. I am talking to my daughter today, Bronwyn Bannerman. She is nine years old. We are just in our second week of distance learning for the new year. Can you tell me about when you first were told that you weren't going to go to school in the actual building? How did you feel? Uh, Happy and sad because I wouldn't get to see my friends. What were you happy about? I was happy that I wouldn't have to sit in the class for, like, ever. Yeah. Then a distance learning came, and I I didn't like it. What don't you like about distance learning? It takes forever, and it kind of melts your eyes. It melts your eyes? It hurts my eyes. It hurts your eyes looking at that screen all the time? Yes. What do you miss about seeing your friends? I miss playing with them. We've seen your friends maybe twice? Mm-hmm. What was different about that? Well, I couldn't really interact with them Yeah. as well. I know you like to hug your friends. Yeah. So are there things that you like better about virtual learning? Not really. I miss the school building. When you're in a virtual class, you said you don't like looking at the screen the whole time. Do you feel like you're learning? Sometimes. Other times I just feel like I'm not really learning. I'm just looking at a screen. Obviously, you're spending a lot more time with your brother. How's that going? It's okay. Sometimes we get mad at each other. Do you feel like you get mad at each other more often now than when you had school? I don't necessarily know. No? It's been so long since I've been in uh, non-social distance school then that I don't necessarily know. Yeah. You know, Mama and Papa, of course, we work from home. How is that for you? 
I think it's fine once school started up because we actually had something to distract from it. Mm-hmm. But before that, it was kind of hard. Like, yeah. no one would really pay attention to us. Yeah, because we were always doing stuff on the computer. Yeah. Did you hear the news? No. So they just announced it's going to be distance learning all the way to Christmas. How do you feel about that? I don't necessarily know. I'm like, what's Halloween going to be like? <laughs> Were you kind of hoping that it would be over soon, that you could go back to regular? Yeah, on Halloween, that's what I was hoping. I was like, oh, how are we going to do Halloween? <laughs> oh, yeah. How are we going to do Halloween? I don't know. We haven't even thought about that yet, have we? What is something that you miss about how things were before COVID-19. I miss going to, like, the museum and all that. What is your hope for how things go from this point forward? I hope that more people can start social distancing. Why? YouTube been telling me that there are some protests about how people don't want to wear masks. Uh-huh. So I kind of wish more people would start wearing masks and not go out as often. Hey, if you could do any one thing that you used to do before social distancing, what would you do? I think I'd go to a museum because I I always enjoy that. Which museum do you think? Any museum, really. An art museum, maybe. Really? I I haven't been to one of those in a long time. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Okay. This Thursday on KUNM's college show, Let's Talk New Mexico, they're talking back to school and are looking for students from a variety of grades and backgrounds to share what the fall semester during COVID's been like so far. Whether you might go back in person later this year or know that you won't, how are you feeling about it? Was there something you were looking forward to that's been canceled or changed? Email letstalk at KUNM.org with your experience or call in live during the show this Thursday, August 27th from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. at 505-277-5866. That's 277-KUNM on 89.9 FM. I recently spoke with a group of educators from Albuquerque High School about the school district's decision to keep distance learning for the whole fall semester, what their health concerns are, and how are they evolving their teaching methods every day. Hello, my name is Elena Mayeta. I teach at Albuquerque High School and I teach choir and piano. Hi, um, I'm Liz Alvarado and I am a math teacher. Hi, my name is Forrest Agee and I teach English, creative writing, and language and composition. Hi, my name is Lisa Gillette and I teach jewelry and art one. Hi, I'm Elsie Stott. I am the band director and AP Music Theory teacher. Hi, my name is Veronica Medina. I teach uh, culinary arts, food service one and two, and Chicano studies, home of the mighty bulldogs. APS had a board meeting that decided to do the fall semester stick with online and at-home learning. How do you all feel about that decision? Honestly, it's a relief. Just having some consistency and really being able to get to work and planning out a full semester is such a relief for me and I think will really help my students in the long run. I'm feeling just relieved, honestly. I'm happy that our school board listened to us. We have students that, along with ourselves, live in multi-generational households. Keeping the grandparents safe, the parents safe, the kids, the whole line. I'm just glad they listened. I'm really relieved that I have some consistency and I can plan long-term instead of week by week, like, is this week online and the next week gonna be hybrid? It 
relieves some of the stress of the unknown. It's a tremendous amount of work to be able to put together a curriculum in a new format, to go from one format to another and go back and forth. There would be so many distractions, so much stress, uh, so much of a burden uh, laid on the backs of the students and, and many of the parents and many of the teachers. And I think that there would be very little learning that would be happening. When they were debating, do you go back in a hybrid model? Do they go back fully? Do we stick to online? What were your personal fears and concerns that you were going through? Someone has said this before, so this is not an original quote. As a teacher, I'm willing to do really just about anything for my students. I would throw my body in front of them and take a bullet for them, but I really do draw the line at bringing it home to my daughter and my family. There, there has to be a line. I can't sacrifice myself or I have nothing left to give. You know, asking me to sacrifice myself is one thing. Asking me to sacrifice my family is, that's a line too far. I grew up in a multi-generational household and I had to work and be a caregiver and go to school my senior year. And I have students facing the same options. Some of their parents and grandparents have become sick in this time and they've had to take on full-time jobs themselves as essential workers themselves. I feel a sense of relief knowing that if we stop at the semester mark at least, their credits will line up cleanly. They'll be able to plan for the rest of their high school career. How have you had to change your method of operation to really feel like you're gonna give an adequate and effective education to your kids, although they're remote and they have different technological challenges? Yeah, I, I mean, this is incredibly challenging, but I, I really see it as an opportunity for all all of us and I think it's important for our students to see how vulnerable their teachers are and so the art department at AHS has been building community partnerships too so that um, it goes beyond just your Google classroom and what's happening on their computers so we're having a virtual show with the National Hispanic Cultural Center that will be up soon I'm really using this time to expand the way I teach. Just for myself, I'm going to be totally honest. I think it's a work in progress for me. I've only had the opportunity to interact with some of my students maybe twice since we started. As a teacher, I gained so much like non-tangible information from them by just seeing their faces and seeing how they're interacting with material, especially in a math classroom. Like you can see it on their face, you know, if they're struggling or if they got something. And to just see like a grid of some kids who are on and some with little icons. And for me, it's going to be a work in progress to continually reach out to them and to sort of make it known that I'm here for them. Do you all worry about unequal access to your classes, given that, you know, not all the students have internet or computers or even smartphones in that fashion? And what can you do? What are you doing to try to ensure that these kids aren't really left behind? The equity, or should I say the inequity, is clearly visible because even when we shut down in March when all this went down, everything was just so brand new. And I told this one little girl, hey, Miha, they're giving Chromebooks. She said, Miss, I can't take a Chromebook to the shelter. I'll be a target. And, you know, to eye open for all of us, for all of her teachers even, it was like, wow, okay, you know, what, what can we do to help? So there truly is, you know, especially here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there is a need for for all of us to care. The equity and inequity is visible during this time, of course. And then it was a matter of, okay, I have a Chromebook, 
but I don't have internet. <laughs> I don't have that service at my house. And I, a friend of mine that teaches a special education class, her mother was a solid Spanish speaker, and she was asking her, well, who's going to come in and give up on my computer? You know, who's going to connect it? And so she wanted the teacher to come in and, and connect it for her. So that was a whole other issue. Are there things you wish that the school system would look at more closely or make systemic changes in order to prevent racism and biases from coming through in terms of education? People have to be willing to first admit that they have these biases because you can't confront something that you're unwilling to admit. And I think there's a, a big issue in education still where people are unwilling to sit with that discomfort and go, I have some issues and I need to confront my own biases. And it's not something that is just done. I mean, it's, it's daily work being willing to say, no, I need to reevaluate. No, I have to keep working. It's every minute, every day, working to improve what we're doing for our kids so that we can meet them where they are and give them what they need. Because every, every student who steps into our classroom is a, is a mountain of possibility. And they just need someone to believe in them and help them get where they need to be and where they want to be. I'm the, uh, one of the department heads for the English department. We study a lot of literature. And the literature that uh, we can choose to study could be a bunch of, let's say, uh, I don't know, dead white men. And we could show people that those are the people who know how to think. Or we could choose uh, to create a diverse curriculum where we have the same types of people in our curriculum that are reading our curriculum, that those people are intelligent, that those people are smart. Bias is ingrained in everything in, in the public school system. So I think like there's a paradigm shift that needs to occur. And I think in this model that we have, it's like we have the chance to reinvent everything because we have to rebuild everything from the bottom up. Like all of my old face-to-face -face lesson plans aren't gonna work. So I have to rethink every single thing that I do and I have to think, how am I going to do that for those kids in a way that's gonna help them? Coming up in 10 minutes, we look closer at transparency from school districts and what's not seen during this emergency. Imagine being in school, writing for the school newspaper while covering a global pandemic and a racial justice uprising. Talk about on-the-job training. Cameron Ward and Andrew Gunn from the Daily Lobo of the University of New Mexico join me. Let me start off. Cameron, you reported that as of the first day of school, 35 people had coronavirus. But what are you hearing about who is not included in that count? So far, what we know is that main campus has a total of 14 positive cases. HSC, which is Health Science Center, has 15 as well as UNMH, and so is athletics. Those numbers are super unrepresented since they are all being reported to the self-report. And a lot of those employees and academic employees aren't required to self-report. So there's no mode of enforcement and makes those numbers super unreliable. Now, according to your knowledge, are there some in-person classes happening at UNM this semester? Yes, I did actually find out that there is a lot, though they aren't required to come in. Some teachers are asking that if you can, please come in once a week as the weeks progress. Andrew, during the pandemic, you know, finances are tight for everybody right now, and there are mostly low reviews for online classes. So students were calling for lower tuition. What happened with that this summer? 
Right. So it's been kind of an ongoing saga since just before the pandemic started and the lockdown and quarantine and all the rest that accompanies that. So the Board of Regents actually voted to raise tuition in, let's see, March 9th was when the Board of Regents unanimously greenlit that tuition and fee raise. Over the past 10 years, tuition has gone up about 24%. So students are paying about $600 more than they did in tuition and fees compared to 2010. So after that, the legislature had their emergency session and cut about $30 million from the allocations for UNM. So uh, Board of Regents got together and went forward with that tuition increase. What the student response has been, there was a petition online on change.org to lower the cost of tuition in light of hybrid and remote learning. Many people think it doesn't offer the same level of productivity. So about 5,000 people signed that. And we reported on the change.org petition as well as student sit-in that was outside of President Garnett Stokes' house, which had about 50 people come out. Do you think this creates barriers for students trying to continue college even though there is a pandemic? I really do believe that the tuition rise is a barrier, especially in a poor state. I think the tuition was already high enough in the first place. What are some things people who are not paying tuition may not, they might not understand about this situation? A lot of our student fees go towards the athletics department. The Mountain West Conference canceled all fall sports several weeks ago. The question now becomes where are our student fees going? There's not going to be any university-sanctioned athletic events. I believe Johnson Gym is still closed, and our student fees fund a lot of that. There's just a lot of experiences and the traditional university experience that were funded by fees that we're now not going to be able to take advantage of. First, I want to thank you both for coming on to the show. I want to thank you both for your reporting. I've got student journalists for The Daily Lobo, Cameron Ward and Andrew Gunn. Again, thank you both for joining me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Lee Montgomery is an art professor at the University of New Mexico and a member of United Academics of the University of New Mexico, a new union for instructors at the school. You know, UNM, the University of New Mexico, and the United Academics of the University of New Mexico, the professors' union, recently reached an agreement detailing the return to school protocols for classroom and campus safety. Can you give me a brief background on the negotiations and how we got to the place where we're at now? For the first time, we really felt like the smaller teams were talking in a way that it's really about negotiating. Hmm. That there was a real sense that we had something to offer as a union to the administration and that what we were offering was building on an infrastructure that they were trying to build at the same time. And there was absolutely a sense that there were things that we knew about you know, we're in the classroom with the students. Yeah. So we know what's going on in, in the day-to-day interactions. And so we were able to really offer some insights that I don't think they would have had if they hadn't just sat down across the table from us. Mm-hmm. When it was just the invested parties, not lawyers and other administrators who maybe weren't directly involved, we were able to put together what I've heard some of my fellow faculty refer to as the the clearest, most direct communication about returning to campus that has come out yet. Okay. And we feel really good about it. 
Yeah. Talk to me about concerns from professors and staff, because you all are actually in the classrooms doing this work. There was a lot of discussion about specifics of monitoring people's presence on campus. There was a plan for limiting entrances to buildings and having monitors at those entrances so that if people aren't wearing masks, they're caught before there's a confrontation at the class Mm -hmm. level. And that was something new that we negotiated on and came up with a sort of middle ground solution where we are advising departments and areas to limit the entrances in the buildings. And the provost's office has developed a student ambassador program where students will be wandering the campus trying to, in a non-aggressive way, monitor mass compliance. Mm-hmm. I like that because... COVID-19 has been highly politicized and it's created altercations and I could see something to where, particularly on campus, there's a certain student who may have a certain opinion or a staff member may have a certain opinion about COVID-19 and its seriousness. One last question for you. Have any students Mm -hmm. expressed to you worry or fears about, you know, coming back into school, particularly on campus? And if so, what do you do to assuage those fears? I am not necessarily the person to assuage the fears of going on to campus. I think if you have to come to campus for one reason or another, that you should do so as safely as you can. I do think that the policies that we came up with in our negotiations will make things safer, but I think we're still dealing with a pandemic and that if people don't have to go to campus, they shouldn't go to campus. And I think we should have a healthy fear of this virus uh, going forward until such time as things are better. That's my personal take on it. There are a lot of people with different ideas. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I feel it's best to err on the side of extreme caution, particularly when there's a global pandemic going around. And I think we're on the same page there. That's right. That's right. Sign me up for class. Um, All right. Yes. I want to thank you so much for being with me again. He is Lee Montgomery, art professor at the University of New Mexico and a member of UAUNM, United Academics of the University of New Mexico. Thanks again, Lee. Thank you, Khalil. Ryan Lowry is an award-winning independent journalist who covers a lot of government transparency issues. The Las Vegas City Schools District in New Mexico has a history of breaking state public record laws. So what's happened so far, even before the pandemic? You know, this really dates back to at least 2018. And the record laws have been a little bit more of a recent development with new superintendent. It seems to be the cause of a lot of the problems. Hmm. Most recently, they apparently had a positive COVID-19 test within the district. And the transparency on announcing that was not handled well either. Hmm. How did that play out? Late last week, rumors were flying around town that there had been a positive test within the district. I had spoken to county emergency manager, and he said he heard the same rumors, but nothing official. So going into the weekend, I started hearing from parents that they were getting text and robocalls saying that the district office was going to be closed Friday, and still no word of that. And then Sunday evening around 8 p.m., the district posted a very verbose and confusing statement on Facebook that opened with like two paragraphs explaining what HIPAA privacy laws are. And then finally, in like the third paragraph, sort of confirmed that there was a case, but it could have been clearer also. (laughs) 
Wow. Now, do you think parents and teachers and students understand why this kind of lack of transparency thing matters? I think most of them do. If you're a parent, I'm sure you're concerned about your student in the district. They are starting with online classes, but there's a lot of things that have to be done at the district office, parents picking up packets and stuff like that. So I think everyone was kind of on edge and wanting to know if they may have come in contact with someone who has tested positive. Yeah. It seems like agencies everywhere, they're saying that the pandemic is making it hard to comply with records laws and open meeting rules. During an emergency like this, what do you make of that type of explanation? Well, here's what's interesting about Las Vegas City Schools. In terms of the pandemic, they seem to be making it harder on people, and it appears to be on purpose. The most recent thing that I wrote about for the Las Vegas Optic was on August 5th, a woman, Stacey Fulgenzi, she's a former volleyball coach at Robertson that was placed on leave and not really told why initially. She has been, since October when she was placed on leave, requesting documents under public records laws Hmm. to try to figure out why she was placed on leave. And the district for months has been putting roadblocks in her way. And then she had requested, citing the pandemic, that she would like to have her recent requests emailed to her. And she tells me that those requests were just largely ignored by the district. She came in end of July, and the records custodian, she says, was hovering over her the entire time, not wearing a mask. And so she had requested again that they be emailed to her. District still did not do that. And then while she was in the building for a basically scheduled appointment to inspect public records, they uh, called the police on her, Hmm. demanding that she pay a dollar for photo that she took of public records, which is absolutely not allowed by law. So, you know, most records are held electronically, and it should be an easy thing to just email those to people. But this district seems to use the pandemic as almost another roadblock to prevent information from getting into the hands of the public. Whose job is it to really force the district to comply with very established laws? Yeah, it would fall largely on the Attorney General. Stacey Fulgenzi did file a complaint, and the AG's office did respond um, in January. They reprimanded the district, and to my knowledge, the district stopped assessing those kinds of illegal fees after that and did move to adopt a standard fee they would charge. Any further action would have to come from the AG's office, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. He's Ryan Michael Lowry, reporter. Thank you so much for being with me, my friend. Yeah, thank you, too. With the long list of issues and worries that COVID-19 has brought us, it is important to remember to stay healthy. On the next Nimono, we look at food access, shelter, and surviving the pandemic. Check out this episode of Nomono and any other episode you may have missed. Head to KUNM.org or look up No More Normal wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you to Ty Bannerman for contributing to the show today. Shout out to Hannah Colton and Bryce Dix for helping with the editing. Big thanks to Taylor Velasquez for heading up our social media. Music for the show is provided by Jazz Tone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, and Olaud Records. Kaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt composed some of the show's themes. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco, produced and hosted by yours truly. I'm Khalil Ekelona. From everyone here at Nomono, thanks for listening.